Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Anderson. This episode features content from an educational webinar titled Principles of Outpatient COVID-19 Management. During this podcast, Dr. Renzo Shearer, Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago in Chicago, Illinois, and Dr. Trin Vu, Clinical Pharmacy Specialist at Emory University Hospital Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia, discuss COVID-19 testing, risk stratification, treatment options for acute COVID-19, and what we know to date about long COVID. To follow along with the accompanying slide set, please visit the link in the show notes for this episode. Now, let's get started and hear what Dr. Shearer and Dr. Vu have to say about outpatient management of COVID-19. I think this is really an important moment for this topic, for the principles of the outpatient management of COVID-19. And because of the good news and the bad news, and I'd be very positive with our attendees for the better toolbox that we have to deal with uh, SARS-CoV-2 in this era, better testing and more broadly available, and uh, better therapies and more effective vaccines. So I think our toolbox has improved enormously, and yet it's still a good news and bad news story. And so part of the bad news is shown on this slide. That's the broad distribution across the globe for SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-2 variants. And you can see the trend that we're all very aware of, that the Omicron subvariant is really taking over um, in North America, where we have the largest number of cases. And while we've heard about the end of the pandemic phase here in North America, we expect this year to have a total of some 250,000 deaths and even 58,000 deaths in the second half of the year. So not only is nothing over, but we still have an enormous responsibility to generalize the availability of diagnosis and testing to vaccinate as widely as possible, and then to effectively use antiviral therapy. And that, of course, is is what we're doing here. If we look more closely at the United States, the CDC data from September 17th, you can see the rapid rise in blue of all of the different Omicron variants. And what we've learned about Omicron is that it's got a substantially greater likelihood of transmission than Delta. You can see in one study looking at secondary attack rates in households, 31% compared to 21%. And we know that the most vulnerable are those individuals who are unvaccinated. But even compared to Delta in vaccinated individuals, Omicron is 2.7 to 3.7 times more transmissible. And we're also seeing evidence that the Omicron variants are able to better evade immune responses, including vaccine responses. So the, the new CDC guidelines and the availability of the bivalent booster have greatly, I think, improved our ability to prevent uh, these infections. You can see here as recommended for uh, six months to four years for the youngest children. Fortunately, we have primary series available for those who are five years and older. We know that a primary series plus a booster is the most effective regimen. That's what CDC currently recommends. And for adults 12 years and older, a primary series is recommended along with monovalent booster, and we're using the bivalent booster in all of those individuals from 12 to 17. You can There's only a, a present recommendation for the Pfizer bivalent booster, but in general, we're recommending, CDC is recommending that we use this bivalent booster now as the 
booster of choice as long as there's two months following the primary series. And of course, these have been changing so rapidly, I think every week to two weeks, it's reasonable to go back to look at the guidelines to see the kinds of changes that have been made. The one thing that I'd say that concerns me about testing is that we're there's a reduction in overall testing, certainly in testing requirements, and that's welcome. But on the other hand, we may be missing opportunities to identify people early in their infection when they're symptomatic or for close contacts of individuals. So it's still very important to talk to our patients and to recommend that we use the rapid antigen test, the so-called RAT, for those who have significant symptoms, also for those who are close contacts. Now, even though we know that has a higher false negative rate, the ease of its use, the fact that it's available in homes across the United States makes this really the, the first test of choice, understanding that the PCR is still the definitive diagnostic test. And we often hear from our patients, well, I did one test and it was positive, but I did three others and those other ones were negative. Any positive test should be regarded as both definitive and positive and should lead to at least an assessment for the possibility of therapy in those individuals who are high risk. And I, I want to turn to that. The one other problem that I think clinicians are clearly seeing with testing is the phenomenon of continued testing following the initial positive result with tests that are positive for longer than 10 days following infection. And it's a complicated story because that may reflect non-infectious viral particles that are still there where a person is actually able to return to their daily life following the CDC recommendations of five days of isolation and five days with masking. So I think it's a reasonable strategy to encourage people to follow those uh, CDC recommendations for masking following a positive test. And always when there's a negative test, particularly an RAT, to encourage people to repeat those tests in three to five days, just to be sure that a, a, a negative test is truly a negative test. So the heart of this portion of the talk for the principles of outpatient COVID management is shown on this slide, and that's just simple risk assessment for those who are eligible for prompt antiviral therapy or monoclonal antibody therapy. And I say prompt because timing is actually of critical importance that the best efficacy for our therapies is if they're done within the first five to seven days. So in thinking about an individual who's known to have a proven SARS-CoV-2 infection, first question is, do they have risk factors for the severe, severe disease as determined by their symptoms? Is there clear shortness of breath? Is the, If they have a pulse oximeter or if they've had an opportunity to have their oxygen level measured, is there significant hypoxia? In which case, they clearly go to an emergency room for evaluation and possible hospitalization. You can see if they have no risk factors and no, no evidence of serious disease. There's no therapy that's recommended, but there certainly is a need for ongoing support and telehealth follow-up. We've seen that those individuals can be frightened, can be isolated, need help with how to manage COVID-19 in the home. So I wouldn't say disconnection from those individuals, really continuing some form of telecommunication is quite important. On the other hand, for those who are at risk of severe disease, who have had symptoms for less than five days and who have no moderate or dyspnea or uh, hypoxia, they clearly should be considered as eligible candidates for COVID-19 oral antiviral therapy 
or monoclonal antibody. And I think this is probably the most important take-home point here is that in addition to prompt testing and identification and hopefully maximal vaccination of all of our patients, that we're looking for those individuals who, if symptomatic or with a positive test, will get the most benefit from the use of uh, antiviral or monoclonal antibody therapy. So that takes us to what those risk factors are. And this is one, I think, very useful graphic that shows the increased risk for susceptibility to COVID-19 mortality and the relationship between age on the top, on the left-hand side, and comorbid conditions. And you can see the very familiar list of comorbid conditions like chronic kidney disease, diabetes, neurocognitive disorders, ischemic heart disease, and other cardiovascular disease, chronic pulmonary disease. Those all increase the risk of severe disease and by a range of 20 to 30%. By contrast to that, you see the incremental age increases when you get to above 50 to 64, 65 to 74, 75 to 84, the magnitude of the increased risk of mortality goes in 6.7 for those 65 to 7.4, 8.5 fold for 75 to 84, and a tenfold increased likelihood of mortality for those that are over age 85. So clearly, age is the strongest risk factor for the development of severe COVID-19. And there's actually quite a long list from CDC of other criteria that uh, qualify. You can see over on the right-hand side, sickle cell disease is included. Uh, just the use of tobacco and tobacco smoking. And if you look even further, dementia alone, HIV infection, particularly advanced or untreated HIV, active tuberculosis, substance use disorder, the being the recipient of a solid organ or stem cell transplant. And I think very important, importantly, pregnancy. So many of these conditions are more common and clustered at the older age groups, but there are many here that are also seen in younger people. Overweight or morbid obesity is another. Severe depression or schizophrenia, mental health conditions are others. So having a wide net for the potential eligibility of people who would benefit from specific therapy, I think, is, is quite important. So I'm going to finish this section by looking at what the IDSA and the NIH treatment guidelines recommend that we use in these settings, also recommend against, and then uh, we'll take some questions and move on to the second session. So the IDSA recommendations for those people who have mild to moderate risk, but they're not hypoxemic, they don't have symptomatic shortness of breath, who are at high risk, recommendations include use of a monoclonal antibody, use of remdesivir within seven days of symptom onset, or nemetrelvir and ritonavir within five days. And you can see also for those with no other treatment options where some of those interventions are not available, alternatives include malnupiravir if it's used within five days of symptom onset, and also convalescent plasma. And then very importantly, there's also the availability of pre-exposure prophylaxis, with tixagevimab, silgavimab, for those who are moderately severely immunocompromised, who have an inadequate response to a vaccine or where the vaccine's actually not recommended because of an adverse effect. So that's an important use for a monoclonal antibody in the pre-exposure phase. Now the NIH guidelines are quite similar. They actually recommend in order of preference for the same group who are 
clearly at higher risk but do not need to be hospitalized who are not hypoxemic, their order of preference is to start with PO nemetrelvir plus ritonavir, must be used within five days of symptom onset, or also remdesivir within seven days of symptom onset. And importantly, as we'll talk about, that's a three-day IV infusion over three days. And that does logistically complicate the use of remdesivir in that setting. And then the alternative agents recommended by NIH in this case are the monoclonal antibody bebtilovimab within seven days or malnupiravir within five days. So it's important also IDSA and NIH both have included recommendations on what not to use in this setting. And so in the IDSA recommendations for anybody with COVID-19 and ambulatory with COVID-19, they say one should not use hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. There's an extensive database that supports that as they document in their uh, guidelines. They also recommend for those who are hospitalized or exposed against the use of famotidine and the use of carisivimab and endevimab. And this, of course, reflects that the epidemic keeps changing, the uh, variant keeps changing, and some of the newer variants, as I mentioned, have immune escape that renders them less, these monoclonal antibodies less useful. They also have recommended for anybody who's ambulatory with mild to moderate COVID against the use of inhaled glucocorticoids. So turning to the NIH guidelines, what do they say we should not use in terms of not requiring hospitalization or supplemental oxygen, no use for glucocorticoids or, or dexamethasone. And for those who are discharged from an inpatient setting, they recommend against continuing any of the medications that might have been used like remdesivir, dexamethasone, or baricitinib. So uh, with that, I'm going to turn over to Trin Vu, and she may have actually questions that have come up in during the broadcast, and let's see if there are any to be taken. Yeah, doctor. Um, looks like we had a, a question from Siobhan um, regarding the vaccination. So she asked Pfizer only and not Moderna bivalent. So just wanted clarifications on when the Pfizer and Moderna bivalent booster doses should be given. Sure. So for adults, we often hear, is it okay to mix and match to use one versus the other and that actually, that practice has been endorsed by CDC in the event that you can't find one or the other, that you certainly are free to use the booster that is first available to you. In the specific guideline recommendations, sorry, I was going back to those just to, to show those. In the specific guideline recommendations, there is a requirement for those who are 12, age 12 to 17, only to receive the Pfizer bivalent booster. That's just a matter of clinical trials having been completed in our data. Our approval has only been rendered for that age group for the Pfizer. Otherwise, for anyone who is over age 17, either the Moderna or the Pfizer uh, can be used in that setting. That's a really good question. Are there other questions or do you want to take over, Jen? I'll go ahead and uh, take over from here. Okay. All right. So thank you, Dr. Scherr, for going over the background information and for sharing those guideline updates. For the next segment, I'll be discussing treatment selection. And um, before we delve into how to select an agent, it's important to understand why early antiviral treatment is beneficial. We see the time course of COVID infection is broken down into, into three phases. 
First, we have the early infection phase where viral replication is at its highest with the severity of um, illness being low because symptoms tend to be more mild with associated fevers and cough. And then in the pulmonary phase, replication starts to slow down, but we start to see host inflammatory response kicking in. And this is when you start seeing more severe pulmonary symptoms, including shortness of breath and hypoxia. And then lastly, in the hyperinflammation phase, host inflammatory response is in full gears and severity of illness is at its highest with patients possibly developing ARDS, shock, and cardiac failure. And so to minimize the detrimental effects of the hyperinflammation and pulmonary phases, we need to bring our focus back to the early infection phase, which is highlighted in the purple box. And so we want to start antivirals early to reduce viral replication, to reduce onward transmission, hospitalization, morbidity, and mortality. And for non-hospitalized patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 who are at high risk of progression to severe disease, the NIH guidelines strongly recommends nemetrovir, ritonavir, or remdesivir. And of note, these agents are listed in the order of preference. So nemetrovir, ritonavir is given orally for five days and can be used in patients at least 12 years of age. Now, there are some important clinical considerations with nemetrovir, ritonavir. It must be used within five days of symptom onset. And uh, importantly, because of the ritonavir components, there are some very crucial drug interactions to watch out for. Now, it's also important to be aware of your patient's HIV status because ritonavir does have activity against HIV, and you want to avoid giving a single agent to someone who is HIV positive to prevent the risk of developing resistance. Now, this does bring up an important point. Patients with HIV who are on a ritonavir or even a cobisostat containing regimen should continue their treatment as indicated. And now with remdesivir, um, it is an IV drug given over three days. And as Dr. Scherer mentioned earlier, the logistical barriers here is that it has to be administered in a, in a healthcare setting. And remdesivir must be used within five days or seven days of symptom onset. And so again, these are first-line agents for outpatient treatment as recommended by the NIH with nirmetrovir ritonavir being the most preferred. Unvaccinated patients are likely to derive the most benefits from these two agents. For alternative treatment options, so if neither of the preferred therapies is available or feasible to administer or just not clinically appropriate for the individual, then the NIH recommends either beftelovimab or nomopiravir. So bevtelovimab is given as a single IV infusion, and it should be used within seven days of symptom onset. Now, although bevtelovimab is EUA approved for patients over 12 years of age, currently the NIH is only recommending it for adult patients because clinical studies did not have strong pediatric representation. And so it's used in this population right now to really be uh, based on risk benefit. Bevtelovimab is considered uh, an alternative treatment option because there's limited data on hospitalization and uh, mortality outcomes. And then for uh, monopiravir, um, it is given orally for five days and should uh, be started within five days of symptom onset. Now it is considered an alternative treatment option because of its lower efficacy compared to the um, alternative options. Miropiravir should not be used in pregnant women. So first, the timing uh, of the use of the oral agents are within five days of symptom onset, and this is different compared to remdesivir, in which you can use it within seven days. Now, in terms of adverse events, monopavir has the best safety profile compared to the other two agents. And I do want to point out the pill burden of the oral antivirals. So with uh, numetravir, ritonavir, 
the patient will be taking three tablets a day. And that's six tablets a day for the patient. And then with um, monopiravir, the patient will be taking four capsules twice a day. And that's a total of eight capsules a day. And so it's important to let our patients know about this pill burden expectation up front to ensure compliance and that treatment will be completed. Now, in terms of pregnancy, nemetrovir, ritonavir, and ambesavir may be considered for use, while monopiravir should definitely be avoided. And then both nemetrovir, ritonavir, and remdesivir have renal and liver dysfunction considerations, whereas there are no adjustments required for monopiravir. And so I think this is an extremely useful table to always keep on hand because there are very important practical considerations listed with three of the uh, antivirals listed for um, comparison. And um, because there is limited supply of antivirals, the NIH does provide guidance on how to prioritize outpatient treatment during logistical or supply constraints. So priority is based on immunocompromise and vaccination status, as well as having risk factors for developing severe disease. And so treatment is always prioritized for patients who are immunosuppressed or unvaccinated with the highest risk of severe disease, and that's tier one. Tier two, includes unvaccinated individuals at risk of severe disease who are not included in tier one. And then tiers three and four include vaccinated patients with priority to those who have not received a COVID-19 vaccine booster dose. All right, and then before I turn it back to Dr. Scherr, um, let's take a look at this um, chat and see if there are any questions um, I can answer. So Dr. Scherr, were there any uh, you saw that we can go through? in our time span. Yeah, there, there's a couple that I think are quick. Uh, Siobhan asked, what about the specific question of a drug interaction with nemetrovir and ritonavir and Lexapro? And the answer there is there's really no interaction. And I would direct the listeners to the NIH guidelines, which have a really nice set of tables that include a long list of medicines where you really don't have to worry about the interaction at all. And that's where you can find many of the psychiatric active medications. And then those where you might think about either withholding therapy, it's a long list, they're varied. So I think it's just important to remember probably the biggest single issue with Demetrovir is just to be aware of DDIs, of drug interactions, and yet to not necessarily stop using it. I think in most cases, HIV clinicians are familiar with ritonavir and its drug interactions, and we can work around that with either dose modification or holding medication. So a second question similarly was if a patient has HIV and they're on a cobacistat-containing regimen, what would you do with nemetrovir in that setting? Would you hold the ritonavir? So I'll put that question to you, Trin. Yeah, so thanks for that question there. So if patients are already on a cobacistat-containing regimen, or even ritonavir, the current recommendation is to continue what they are currently on for their HIV regimen. We would not be holding um, the cobisostat or the ritonavir that is part of their HIV regimen. And I think another common question that came from Alexander is just following up with nemetrovir and the question of, is that drug, drug interaction such a disadvantage? They hear many of their coworkers saying they sort of would await treating somebody to see if they need it, to see if symptoms develop. I'd be interested in your opinion on that practice rather than saying if somebody meets these at-risk criteria at high risk, that they are better off starting the medication. So where do you fall on that? Yeah, this one's a, a tricky question. There really is no black and white response. It really depends on 
what the drug interactions are and what the underlying reason the patients are taking their chronic medications. Now, of course, if patients are on an anticoag who has an acute DVT or PE, it's something you would definitely want to avoid a drug interaction for. And so utilizing the drug interaction tool to really assess what the the drug interactions are and, and thoroughly assessing why patients are on um, their chronic medications really help you uh, make your decisions because not only should we be considering the COVID symptoms, but also the patient's acute and, and chronic uh, morbidities. And so we definitely don't want to administer a medication that could detrimentally impact their uh, other uh, comorbidities that are going on. And so again, it's it's definitely not a, a black or white response and it really comes down to patient specific factors here. Oh, that's great. And then the, the last question relates to the question of someone who comes to you, to one of our colleagues already on famotidine or on ivermectin and saying that they symptomatically improved in response to that. Would you actively recommend that they discontinue it, you know, in that setting, or would you just allow the continuation of the, of the usual course of medication? Great question. And I think just given the limited data that we have with famotidine and ivermectin, I would recommend to discontinue. There's just not strong evidence to allow our, our patients to continue. I think there may be more side effects associated with continued Pepsid or I ivermectin use. Now, patients may be improving just because of time, right? If patients are improving several days after starting these medications, just maybe their bodies fighting the, the infections themselves, and it may not be, have been contributed to the other two agents. I just don't have enough data to really support continued use. And I think the adverse effects of really ivermectin and, and the other agent uh, would put more patients possibly at more harm than, than to benefit the patient. Yeah, I, I very much agree with that. And I think maybe in the interest of time, we should, should move forward, in which case we're we're still talking about the clinical trials on which we're basing the, the guideline recommendations for the IDSA and the, and the NIH. So the next clinical trial is the EPIC-HR, which looked at nermatrelvir and ritonavir in the patient population we're talking about, high-risk non-hospitalized patients. This was a massive study with 2,246 people, all of whom were enrolled in the study with symptom onset within five days. And that's a very important context. For our listeners, as you critically look at the literature on response to therapies, antivirals and monoclonal antibodies, pay close attention to how recently they've been infected because it's very clear this can affect outcomes. And here they included those people who were actually at any age, but who had at least one characteristic comorbidity that um, was associated with the development of severe COVID. And the the primary endpoint was the percentage of hospitalizations or deaths by uh, day 28. And you can see here, this is organized by the third day outcomes and the if they were started within three days of symptoms or started within five days of symptoms with very similar results with a striking 88.9% reduction when started within three days, 87.8% within five days with zero deaths in the group that was treated compared to nine in the placebo group at day three and 12 by day five. And then if you look at the hospitalizations, they're even more striking, five compared to 44 at day three, eight compared to 66 at day five. And there were very few serious side effects. And actually the serious adverse events 
were lower than in the treated group they, than they were in the untreated group. So in a separate study look called EPIC-SR, looking at nemetrelvir and ritonavir in standard risk patients, these are non-hospitalized individuals, 1,153 individuals who also had at least one underlying medical condition that might put them at risk. But in this case, folks were vaccinated. So all of the information that I gave you from the previous trial were in an unvaccinated cohort. In the presence of vaccination, didn't see any change in the uh, alleviation of symptoms with or without therapy, but there was a 62% decrease in either medical visits or hospitalizations for folks who were receiving treatment as compared to the placebo group. And there was also a 57% reduction in hospitalizations and death. That turned out not to be significant because the numbers were so low, but you can see that compared to in the treatment arm, three out of 361 individuals either were hospitalized or died who compared to seven in the placebo group. So this gets a little more complicated as to whether we should use these medications in any person who has recently diagnosed disease. And you can see there's a substantial benefit, though it didn't reach a statistically significant level. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and just to go through some of those where co-administration of medication on the left-hand side in red is contraindicated, or in the right-hand side where you would want to monitor, use with caution. You can see on the left-hand side quite a few medications, but really you can limit this to amiodarone, for example, and the cardiovascular medications. There are some cancer treatment drugs, and this would be an important conversation with this individual's oncologist or transplant physician. You can see some concerns with the interaction with Colchicin, with some of the erectile dysfunction drugs when used in high dosages, as in pulmonary hypertension, sildenafil, um, that can be an issue. I would say that in the majority of cases, again, those clinicians who are familiar with the use of ritonavir in HIV, you'll recognize that a five-day course of a medication that contains ritonavir is going to allow you to work around, either to dose reduce to find an interim alternative medication. So in most cases, you will be able to co-administer. And then there are a few where the, the explicit recommendation from both NIH and IDSA is find, use one of the alternative antiviral therapies, stay away from nematrovir and ritonavir. And that's very much a case-by-case -case decision with an individual. And so the most important step that a clinician can take is just to remember this drug-drug interaction and to think it through with the patient. Now, I wanted to take a moment. We also had a question about this phenomenon in the chat about the reported symptom rebound. And this several different groups have reported this. This was a Mayo Clinic report looking at an individual who had this. And then they said that out of their 483 patients who they had treated, four of them, or 0.8%, had experienced a rebound. Rebound was identified by the recurrence of symptoms, somebody looking and feeling like they had an acute episode again with fatigue, with uh, shortness of breath, sometimes with aggravation of hypoxia. And it's defined as occurrence of COVID-related symptoms following completion of the five days of dematrovir and ritonavir. In this case, in the series in the Mayo Clinic, they all resolved without hospitalization, without the need for additional COVID-directed therapy. And it's not clear 
it appears that ongoing infectiousness is possible here. And so following infection control measures becomes important. It does appear to be a low frequency event, something less than 5%, um, and it certainly is still of importance. It has been reported with multiple antivirals, not just with enamatrelvir, and you can have positive cultures thereafter. Although remember, some of the positive tests that may occur following that may actually be with inactive virus. And it's not been so clear exactly what the cause of this is. It does not look like those individuals who have been identified with rebound in that series at Mayo's and another series at the Mass General, it's not easily ex explained by impaired immunity in those individuals, nor has there been the development of resistance mutations to those drugs. So at least at the theoretical level and in the early trials that have been done, a resumption of medication for another period of time has produced some symptoms and has led to an effective outcome. So there's not a, an explicit recommendation for that at this point in time, but it, it is something that can occur. In general, it hasn't been serious and has not been long-lived. So I want to finish then by looking at the other agent that we've spoken of in the ambulatory setting, and that's remdesivir. The pine tree study was uh, explicitly designed for those patients who were at high risk but non-hospitalized with COVID-19. And you can see it was a relatively smaller study, 584 individuals who either received therapy or placebo on day one, and then again, IV on day two and day three. So three days of an intravenous infusion of 200 milligrams of remdesivir. The primary endpoint for this study was the composite of hospitalization or all-cause mortality, with the safety endpoint being treatment-emergent adverse effects. And uh, you can see here the outcome was an overall 80% reduction in COVID-related hospitalization or death. So two events in the remdesivir-treated group compared to 15 events in the placebo group. And if you expand that to medically attended visits or death, it was four out of 246 compared to 21, again, an 81% reduction overall in the likelihood of uh, hospitalization. Interestingly, in this study, there was no difference in viral load by nasopharyngeal swabbing all the way through day one to day seven. Even though we believe the effect to be antiviral, really couldn't establish that there was a difference in virus shedding as a result of this therapy. Nonetheless, um, the benefits were clear. In terms of the safety endpoint, there were very few adverse events. Uh, nausea occurred 11%, headache in 6%, very little difference between uh, treatment emergent events in the placebo group compared to the remdesivir group, as you see. With remdesivir, that was actually fewer in the treated group, 1.8 with serious adverse events compared to 6.7 in the placebo group. So with that, I, I'll stop and see if there's other questions um, from Trin, and then we'll once again trade places. Definitely. All right. So we have a question here from David. Dr. Sher, if you could please comment on the absolute difference in treatment versus non-treatment options with the antiviral. So when should patients absolutely uh, receive treatments, and are there patients who absolutely should be contraindicated? So we're making the very strong case here in support of the guidelines that any patient who meets this definition of high risk, so by age or by comorbidity, is a candidate for, for therapy. And I'm worried that if we're basing that on the patient's initial symptoms only, 
you know, that we're sending folks who might be sick for all the right criteria to the emergency room for evaluation for possible hospitalization, that everybody else is eligible for therapy and should be considered a candidate. So I would answer that with a very narrow group for whom treatment is contraindicated only, for example, in the case with the nemetrovir group, that that's really only limited by those who the very infrequent occurrence of a serious drug-drug interaction that would prevent the use of that drug, in which case I would say there are candidates for the use of uh, remdesivir. That would be the second choice for an antiviral agent. So I'm arguing for much more aggressive therapy than we have been using in the past. And I'm limiting the number of people while I say I don't think you need therapy. It's clear that the, the first priority, if you have, and, and there's actually a section in NIH guidelines that goes through this, where if you have only a certain certain limited options available to you, that the first priority should be the highest risk group. You've seen that the older age group clearly is the highest risk. I would add in that folks who are immune compromised, who meet that criteria for immune suppression, transplant, prolonged corticosteroids, cancer chemotherapy, untreated or advanced HIV, I would prioritize those individuals for therapy. But I'm actually making the case that I'm still concerned by the the specter of 250,000 deaths potentially this year in the United States and our ability to intervene and prevent those deaths therapeutically. So I'm hoping that we can identify people in a timely way and include them for treatment. So I personally have been very broad in my application of these criteria and use this medication readily, much the same as I've tried with an influenza outbreak to identify someone who might be at risk who has flu early in order to use the antivirals for influenza because you can do so much good and prevent a hospitalization or even death in people who are more at risk of severe illness. Uh, Trin, how would you answer that question? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. I think given the options, you know, we have four options now available for our patients. And so the guidelines are just are very clear in that we should be prioritizing our high-risk patients. And if there happens to be a, a contraindication to, like you mentioned, a severe drug interaction, we have alternative treatment options. And so it's, it's really hard to say patients truly have, uh, I mean, if there are true contraindications, there are alternative treatment options for our patients. And I think having the option of four treatment options diff with uh, each varying considerations, I think it really opens the, the, the door for more patients. And so, and I, I like that the guidelines do go through here are most uh, recommended treatment options. But if patients don't clinically meet these guidelines, then here are some alternative treatment options um, that still has been shown to be efficacious. And so, I, I, and I agree with you, I'm, I'm pushing more for treatment rather than, rather than not, because the options are, are definitely uh, broad for our patients. Yeah, I mean, I can list um, in, the, in the last month, the people that I've recommended for therapy are well, like the youngest, I think it was a 28-year-old with juvenile onset diabetes and another 28-year-old who was uh, with pregnancy. Older folks uh, over age 50 with cancer on chemotherapy, with transplant, recent transplant recipient, with uh, advanced AIDS, even though they were therapeutically controlled, but their CD4 cells were in the range of 100 or 150 with multidrug resistance. So pretty broad range of individuals 
that I would include in that. And most of them are age 65 and older, but not all of them. There are some younger conditions. Oh, and a, and a 32-year-old with morbid obesity. So in all those situations, I think we need to think a little more uh, aggressively about therapy. Yeah. And, and I think going back to the side-by-side comparator table, where it compares the three um, antivirals, I think pick your patient and then utilizing those criteria that we've set out, I think is a really, really useful tool to determine uh, what agent is is most appropriate for your patient. Because again, I think that that table lists out some very practical considerations to uh, when selecting the best agent for your patient. Just one thing I do want to point out, someone on this slide here, it was um, Jorge, actually did share a resource for uh, drug interaction that's shared by the um, NIH. And so I, I want to piggyback off that resource, Jorge, that you shared. And so the NIH does provide some great links in, uh, with great resources to evaluate drug interactions, not for just nematrovir, ritonavir, but other COVID treatments as well. And uh, the resource that Jorge mentioned is uh, developed by the University of Liverpool. And so you are familiar with the University of Liverpool's uh, drug interaction tracker for HIV and hepatitis C, this is um, set up very similarly. And so it's an extremely user-friendly tool. And so the resources are out there to really evaluate those drug interactions for these agents. And then in the sake of time, um, Dr. Shur, are you good to to move on? Yes, I think we should move on. Okay. (laughs) All right. And so for the next portion, we'll be talking about the move-out trial for um, monopiravir which is a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind phase three trial that uh, evaluated monopiravir um, for at-risk non-hospitalized patients with COVID-19. And the study included 1,400 patients with confirmed infection and symptom onset within five days. And then they were randomized to to receive either treatment or placebo. And the study included adult patients with at least one risk factor for developing severe disease and age over 60 was a risk factor included. And then the primary endpoints were percentage of hospitalization and or deaths by day 29 and adverse events. And so for the primary analysis, uh, monopiravir 800 milligrams every 12 hours for five days was found to reduce the risk of hospitalization or death by 30%. And this was found to be statistically significant. Um, As previously mentioned, monopiravir has a great safety profile with more patients in the placebo arm reporting serious adverse events and drug discontinuation. And then given this data, the FDA voted 13 to 10 to issue an EUA on December 23rd, 2021 for use when alternative treatment options are not accessible or clinically appropriate. And just like uh, nirmetrovir, ritonavir, uh, monopiravir does have the potential to cause rebound symptoms following its use. And so in a recent study, 2,400 patients who received monopiravir over the course of six months did experience rebound at a rate at 5% at seven days and 8% at 30 days. And the authors of this study concluded that COVID-19 rebound does occur with monopiravir, but it was more likely to occur in patients with comorbidities. And this table provides a summary of the efficacy data of the three antivirals we've just discussed. And what we can conclude from the data is that early use of antiviral agents significantly reduces the risk of hospitalization or death compared with placebo with nometrovir, ritonavir, and remdesivir really having the strongest impact clinically. And of course, it is important to test and treat in a timely fashion to maximize benefits. And then for the next few sections, we'll shift gears and discuss the efficacy of monoclonal antibodies against Omicron, which is the current variant of concern in the U.S. 
And the activity of monoclonal antibodies vary depending on the circulating variants and subvariants. And right now, we're specifically are interested in the BA2 and BA45 subvariants. So looking at the table, uh, we can see that out of all the monoclonal antibodies, only beptilobumab and sagabumab, tixagabumab, or ebilshold still retain activity against the two Omicron subvariants. And sagabumab, tixagabumab is currently only authorized for pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so because uh, beftalibumab still retains activity against the circulating subvariants, an EUA is authorized for the treatment of mild to moderate COVID-19 in patients at high risk for progressing to severe disease. Now, it's important to note that beftalibumab is not authorized for patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 in areas where non-susceptible uh, variants are circulating. And beftalibumab is also not approved for patients who are hospitalized or who are requiring oxygen therapy. And as a reminder, beftalibumab is recommended by the NIH right now as a second-line therapy when anemetrovir, ritonavir, and um, remdesivir are not available. And then uh, for the last segment of the presentation, we'll shift gears again and discuss long COVID. And I know there were um, lots of discussion um, on the chat and lots um, about long COVID. And so we'll, we'll delve into some of that. And long COVID is also known as uh, post-acute sequelae of COVID-19. And so long COVID is defined as new symptoms that affect everyday function, and it usually emerges within four weeks to three months after first being infected. And these symptoms, as we can see, are very broad and can impact numerous organ systems, including neurologic, cardiac, pulmonary, and GI symptoms. So again, very broad. And these symptoms may fluctuate over time and can last for up to two months. So long COVID has been reported in across all 50 states with more cases seen in highly populated areas. The top states right now are California, Texas, and Florida, with, uh, followed by New York and Illinois. And the cumulative long COVID cases are shown on this graph, and we can see that the number of patients with long COVID compared to COVID cases remain low, with uh, the blue line indicating surviving cases and the red line indicating um, estimated long COVID cases. And so at this rate, we're seeing that long COVID is occurring at, at an estimated 1% to 5% of all people with COVID-19 infections. Now, uh, the potential causes of long COVID are thought to be multifactorial due to the virus's direct neural invasion, the dysregulated host immune response, and inflammation. And so the SARS-CoV-2 virus directly injures and affects different organ systems during acute COVID. And then it's believed to linger at those affected sites and tissues and cause persistent symptoms for months. And then in a study um, in 2022, it followed 96 patients for 12 months following hospitalization for COVID-19. And this study found that only 22% of those patients were symptom-free at 12 months. And this graph shows a comparison of symptoms in, in these patients at the acute phase and then at five, nine, and 12 months post-COVID. And we can see that the list that was reported is pretty lengthy. Now, the most commonly reported persistent symptoms from this study were poor exercise intolerance, fatigue, dyspnea, poor concentration, and sleep disturbance. Now, there is a correlation between long COVID and COVID-19 vaccination. So long COVID, as we know, can occur after breakthrough infections, but rates are consistently lower in vaccinated compared to unvaccinated patients. Now, this graph here shows the hazard ratios for developing long COVID symptoms between individuals vaccinated versus unvaccinated against COVID-19. 
And a hazard ratio of lower than one, which is um, to the left of the dotted line, indicate outcomes were less common amongst vaccinated individuals. And so I think this graph really, really emphasizes the impact of vaccination against long COVID. And so the authors of the study here um, concluded that two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine are protective against some post-acute sequelae of COVID-19, but not all. And so now the question to ask is, can early antiviral use prevent long COVID? And so we know that, as uh, we mentioned in the previous slide, that COVID vaccination is the best way to prevent long COVID. But what about oral or antivirals or NIV? And so research are hypothesizing that early antiviral use may prevent or even ease long COVID symptoms because antivirals are reducing that viral reservoir, reducing that viral load to cause any uh, further damage. And so studies are currently being evaluated to conduct amongst the, the three um, antivirals listed here to test this hypothesis. But until we have this data, we should continue to recommend COVID vaccination and early antiviral treatment to our eligible patients. Are there um, any questions, Dr. Sher, from the chat in regards to long COVID? Because I know there were uh, lots of discussion here previously. Well, certainly one, one question from Matthew, I think, sort of is challenging the question of is is long COVID real and really caused by the independent effect of SARS-CoV-2 or is it just an exacerbation of existing comorbidities? I think this is a really important question and I'll give my answer and then ask you yours, Trina. I, mm -hmm. I think that evidence is very clearly in that SARS-CoV-2 causes its own prolonged symptom complex. That's what we're calling long COVID or PASC. It's been designated as a category for chronic illness that is worthy of reimbursement. And so there's a, there's a diagnosis code for long COVID now, which will qualify someone for having a disabling condition. So I think the scientific community says yes. And yet you're asking a really good question because much of what goes into the prolonged hospitalization for people with comorbidities, need for dialysis or for more aggressive cardiovascular medications and treatment is there is an exacerbation of comorbidities and we are seeing both. And yet it's very clear to me that there is an independent SARS-CoV-2 related cause that really merits our attention and attempts at treatment. I agree. Uh, I think there is a component of an exacerbation of your chronic conditions, but I, I think we should also emphasize that one of the definitions of long COVID is new symptoms that affect our patients, right? So these are symptoms that wasn't present before and are arising weeks to months after the infection. And so it's really hard to, to draw that fine line if this truly is real or not. But I think the, the data is there to, to really say Long COVID probably is really due to, to the COVID-19 infection and um, its persisting impact of, of the virus affecting the various organ systems. There are two questions related to inhaled steroids, and they get to two different aspects of the use of those drugs. The first is, if there is already someone who's on fluticasone or, or salmitrol or an inhaled steroid with clinical benefit, are they okay if they're treated in this case? The question was with nematrovir and ritonavir. Is that a drug interaction that would prevent their use? I think with five days of use, five days of Paxlovid or um, nematrovir, ritonavir, 
the risk of causing a very serious drug interaction is, is fairly low, especially if our patients are um, benefiting from current use of symmetral uh, fluticasone. And so I think with five days, it may be safe. And again, this really all comes down to your individual patient specifics. But I, I think for the short course of Paxlovid, I would say it's, I would benefit or I would favor using and continuing the treatment if our patients are clearly showing benefit from their current inherited corticosteroids. Now, if patients are just starting treatment or it's just, there's no clear benefit, then you could consider withholding during the five-day um, therapy. Mm -hmm. That was a question from Michelle. I really agree with your answer. And then a question from Lentech went all the way back to its the specific recommendation against uh, their use in uh, the NIH guidelines. And I think in that setting, that's actually as a form of active therapy against. And the, the question is, are they contraindicated or just not indicated for the treatment? And I think your answer would still apply in that setting, that they certainly have not been shown demonstrably to have a benefit in reducing symptoms or hospitalizations from SARS-CoV-2 infection itself, but if they're on board for other reasons and there aren't interactions, that they can reasonably still be continued. So I agree with that. Another question related to the use of malnupiravir, recognizing its teratogenic potential, was what are the ideal uh, recommendations for contraceptives for women of reproductive age who are in whom malnupiravir is used? Yeah, and that's a really great question. So um, in for women, and, and really applies to both men, anyone who you're evaluating who qualifies for uh, monopiravir should be started on contraceptives during uh, monopiravir treatment courses. And right now, the FDA is saying during uh, those five days and three months after monopiravir um, administration. And this is just because the teratogenic effects are has been prevalent that we want to ensure all of that drug has been cleared out of the system. And so definitely during therapy, and then again, right now, the FDA is uh, recommending up to three months after um, completion of therapy. Yeah, thanks. Amila asks, what do you do with people who are low risk, but who have symptoms from SARS-CoV-2 infection, and they come to you requesting the use of an oral antiviral, for example, a nermatril beer? How do you respond to that? This is a great question, and I'll respond, and I'm curious as to what your response is to, Dr. Sher, but I think we really want to be cognizant of that COVID-19 is a public health issue, and, and as mentioned earlier, the, the NIH has a prioritization table for a reason. Supply is limited, and so we are prioritizing treatment for patients who are at highest risk for severe disease and hospitalization. And so if patients do not have those high, or, um, high risk factors for developing severe disease, then I would reserve our supply because we've got to think about just the rest of the population who may be needing the supply because the supply that you use could be taking it away from someone else. And, um, and so I think that's a really important point to, to bring up that prioritization table from the NIH should really be emphasized because this is a global uh, epidemic, right? And it's impacting everyone. No, I completely agree with your response. It's important to defend and shore up the record of the full series with a booster of the impact of vaccinations at reducing 
hospitalization, the occurrence of severe disease and mortality, and that most people who have uh, received that who lack these other high-risk factors are really well protected by that. And so reinforcing that, I think, is is reasonable and, and explaining how low the incidence is of hospitalization and more serious outcomes is. So it's a conversation like so many other parts of, of internal medicine. There's a very good point from Gabriela, um, who says, why are you only talking about the use of remdesivir in a hospital? Um, you certainly can use remdesivir for three days in a row intravenously through an infusion center or through the use of home visiting nursing. So maybe you'd comment on that, Trin. Right. With remdesivir, it is an IV infusion. And so we, we are definitely are, are not recommending or not saying that remdesivir is only reserved for hospital use. Um, it may be an outpatient option. It really comes down to lo logistics. And if your mm -hmm. medical center has the program set up to allow for you to receive outpatient um, infusion. And so definitely not, not a, an inpatient hospital medication by any means. Or, I mean, the NIH does list remdesivir as an outpatient treatment option. It's just the logistical barriers you have to face for patients to have to come back to the clinic daily, having that line put in for infusion. But the medication can be given, but it just really comes down to if there are um, systems in place for your medical centers around you. Great, we have a question from Mary. Another common scenario is what, what about if the symptoms were vague at onset and there's a lot of uncertainty about how long they've been around, what guidance would you give clinicians for whether or not an individual fits in their eligibility? Say they are older or have high risk, how, would you, how do you approach that? That's a good question. And I think that comes down to, and I, I would assume the this patient is COVID positive with yes. vague symptoms. If the patient is at high risk and if, and I, I think this really comes down to a thoroughly interviewing and assessing the patient, you really want to ask them if they can really recall when their symptoms start. And, it, and it, if it is vague, but still within that, that time period and their risk factors are there, I would favor utilizing one of the treatment options for them. And again, I think it really emphasizes the, the high risk factors. So if at all, if they are within that time frame, vague or not, uh, and, and as we know, COVID symptoms can be pretty vague. I mean, it could, some patients have more of a respiratory symptom and some may be more body aches. And so sometimes you're thinking, because it's really be COVID, if, but if the patient did test positive and have high risk, I really would be in favor of starting treatment if they are eligible. And Dr. Sir, um, would you approach it any differently? Yeah, I'm, I'm generous with prescriptions for uh, the uh, antiviral therapies. I, I think there's a little bit too much reluctance in the field for the potential good that they, may, that they may do. And so I will try to ascertain, I'll try to follow the, the five-day rule to the greatest extent possible in the case of nermatrovir or the seven-day rule for remdesivir and to apply those. And, uh, but I think that the downside risk is really minimal in terms of the use of therapies. So I tend to be inclusive. There's a couple of questions that I'll speak to, and then um, Trin, maybe you could offer also an opinion. Jerry asked, in my opinion, was the bivalent booster going to have a significant impact in the Omicron-related variants, the BA4, BA5, and now the BQ11, which seems to be suddenly overtaking Europe and the UK and is anticipated to 
be the dominant uh, variant here in the United States? I think the answer to that is yes, that there's good early evidence that there's an advantage to receiving the bivalent vaccination. I think the judgment that the administration has made and the CDC have made to to recommend that um, and that it be up taken up broadly is a is a wise one. So that's my recommendations to my patients, and I I share that with others. So I think that's that that does offer us an advantage that people should take should take us up on. I agree. I would definitely recommend it as well. Um, as we know, and the new bivalent does cover some of the new um, subvariants that are, are circulating, and I, of course. Things are constantly changing and new variants are developing, so it's hard to capture it all. But this, this bivalent booster, we know, will provide that added benefit to our patients. So I, I definitely would agree and would favor pushing for um, the uh, booster. I'd like to thank Dr. Shearer and Dr. Vu for that excellent discussion. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder, to view the slide set for this podcast and the full program on best practices for early outpatient COVID-19 diagnosis and antiviral treatment, on the Clinical Care Options, Practicing Clinicians Exchange, and Pro-CE websites, click on the links in the show notes for this episode. And please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thank you.